I just think property management, I have a lot of conversations about this and I struggle with it myself is that they're never going to care about your property or your business the way that you do. And so you need to go in with a measured expectation about how they're going to handle stuff. I know my brother owns like four or five properties and had moved them off to property management and was like, well, we're not getting five star reviews anymore and we're not. And it's like, and you're not going to, you know, the price is, is that you don't talk to, you know, you have a level of not thinking about things and you get your check, but your check may not be, it's not going to be as high as if you managed it yourself. I'm Neil. And I'm Brittany. We are a family on a journey towards financial and location independence. Each week, we interview successful real estate entrepreneurs about their chosen investment strategy and rate it based on how much money it took to get started, how long it took to educate themselves, how passive it is, and whether or not they could do it from anywhere in the world. Welcome to the Road to Family Freedom. If you like our show, the easiest way for you to give back is to leave us a rating and review on iTunes. Head on over to roadtofamilyfreedom.com slash review for links and instructions on how to do that. We would be so grateful. All right, enough out of us. Let's hit the road to family freedom. Before we begin this week's show, I'd like to make you an offer, a free 30-minute call with me. We've been doing weekly chats with other real estate investors for months now, and the response has been great, but we're going to change things up a bit and focus. We're buying self-storage facilities. We have a great partner in North Carolina with a great track record of success, a background in construction, and we're partnering up to help him expand his portfolio. If you have an interest in learning more about investing in self-storage on the active side, on the passive side, whatever your level of interest, we want to talk to you. There's no pitch here. We're not selling a coaching program. This is just a chance for us to network with other investors interested in self-storage. Also, if you're a current self-storage owner, we'd love to chat with you and perhaps have you as a guest on our show. If all that sounds like something you'd be interested in, go to roadtofamilyfreedom.com slash self-storage call and schedule a call there. I look forward to speaking with you. Greetings, friends and families. I'm Neil. And I'm Brittany. You're listening to the Road to Family Freedom podcast. Our guest this week is the co-owner of Aaron and James Real Estate. She's a short-term rental investor, but she also specializes in helping home buyers purchase short-term rentals in several Colorado markets, with a special emphasis on using that strategy on house hacking. She also runs Denver Women Invest, a monthly investing group for women. Aaron Spradlin, welcome to the Road to Family Freedom. Hey, guys. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. It's good to see you. So you first became a short-term rental investor actually in, in 2014, which is around when we started as well. Can you walk us through how that came about? Yeah. So my husband, he's not my husband, but he was my boyfriend at the time. We both had our own units. So I owned a condo and there, or my parents owned a condo, which I then proceeded to buy. But I lived in my own condo and then he had a rental. And so uh, we were not ready to live together yet. But we also were like, man, we're throwing away a lot of rent. So we were trying to figure out a situation with that. And I had known because I'm we live in Denver. In 2008, there was the Democratic National Convention in Denver. And so I had heard about a lot of people having success with short-term renting their places out. But then I really hadn't heard about people necessarily doing it after that. But because I was aware of that, I started to look into it. Um, and I just thought, hey, if I make $400 a month off of this, it'll cut down my rent and I'll be happy about that. 
but it just ended up being gangbusters. It was like the minute I put it on within 30 minutes, I had a hundred dollar rental and that basically never stopped. And also what's funny about that is that it really pushed us to living together because we were like, the money is sick. And <laughs> I, I guess now we will be spending all of our time together. And obviously it's worked out, but yeah. um, that is how we started it. Gotcha. And what, uh, tell, break down the numbers for that first property that you bought as a house hack. and what? Yeah. You know. So my rent on that was $1,300 a month. And then, you know, basically, like I said, I started and within half an hour, I had a hundred dollar rental. I kept it at a hundred dollars. And I would say in 2014, Airbnb was not as prevalent as it is now. It's crazy. Even within like a year or two where I was at, but I mean, I could have rented it 30 days you know, a month, I could have had full occupancy. And I think I was probably close to like 25 or 26 days in then. And so we were making, not only were we covering the rent, we were then pocketing another 1300 off of it. And then we don't do this anymore. And we stopped, but we also at that point started to rent other apartments and put them on the Airbnb model, probably for six months to a year. And then my husband was doing it on his place as well. And so I mean, we were, I would say we were probably pulling in three to 4,000 a month off of these rentals, which was insane. It was not what we were making in our day jobs yet, but it was certainly like a really nice cushion. Yeah. And were you, were you doing this back then? You could certainly get away with it, doing it without the landlord's knowledge, but were you, you know, were you or weren't you? We were not telling the landlords and basically what happened, we had a couple incidents that were kind of weird. We went to Puerto Rico with my family for Thanksgiving and some people couldn't find the keys. And that ended up just being a headache and not something you really wanted to deal with during Thanksgiving. And, and I think we both had qualms about lying, you know, or being kind of under the radar. And then my husband got caught by his landlord and they were friends and the landlord was not happy. And so after six months to a year, I'm not actually quite sure how long we did it, but we stopped with those events. It was like, this is not, we've made a lot of money. It's not fun to have gotten caught. And, and also what kind of happened at that point was my husband felt like he was starting to get more and more involved with bigger pockets and investment circles. And so that was 2014. We got engaged in November of 2014 and got married in July of 2015. And I want to say in fall of 2015, he had sent out a mailing letter to condos to see if anybody was interested in selling their condo so that we could rent it and own the property and, you know, have it. But it's interesting because he wanted to use a HELOC on that. And I was like, are you nuts? Like, we're not going to leverage our house for this hobby. And he kind of talked me into it. And So then we ended up buying a property off of that mailing, which is kind of unusual. I think a lot of people do mailings and it doesn't always work out. In this case, not only did it work out, we got a property, but also we had all these people saying, no, but we're thinking about selling. So then we're like, huh, maybe we should become real estate agents. Maybe people would also want Airbnb investments that are legal and that we can coach them on the numbers. And so it really was, he did that mailing. And so after that, we were like, all right, we're going to try this. 
Okay, so I want to unpack two two things that we covered there. One is the whole idea of Airbnb rental arbitrage. There's a lot of people who do it. It was, as you said, back in the day, it was more prevalent. People were doing it, you know, under the radar. Landlords are wise to it now. Don't do it without talking to a landlord. However, it is possible to approach a landlord and and offer that and and do it above board and do it. So that's that's the first thing. Second thing, so that first property that you actually bought was a condo, correct? Yes. All right. And you bought it using your HELOC? Did you buy it for cash or did you use the HELOC for down payment? We used it for both. So we used it for down payment and then we also used it to furnish. So it was a little 450 foot studio and I want to say it cost 120000 So our, I think that, so 20% of that would be about 24000 that we put down. And I think we had like 38,000 in the HELOC or something. So then it was another 8,000, I want to say, to furnish the studio. And we furnished the studio pretty cheaply. So we did Ikea on everything. What was interesting for us too is that the studio came with a Murphy bed. We actually took the Murphy bed out and put a dedicated bed against the wall. We find, this is a little bit of a tangent, but we find people like Murphy beds we don't because it interrupts the whole flow of the studio. You're always trying to move shit. It's actually not nearly as convenient as a lot of people think. So we took out the Murphy bed, put it on. And then anyways, it was 8,000 all in for the studio. Gotcha. So all in for about $32,000, but that was all from your HELOC, correct? Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Great. Love it. So now do you guys self-manage any of the properties that you have, or do you use a property management company? So we, we would only use a property, we used a property management company. So now we own two properties in Colorado Springs and two in Denver. We would only use a property management company and we've only used a property management company on short term rentals because we really don't want to deal with that. It's just, it's a short term management. You guys are both smiling is a lot of work. It's like, it's good money, but it's definitely not free money. And there's just a, a real emphasis on communicating all the time and cleanliness and stuff. So we moved that to a property manager, but we in Denver, because the laws had changed and you could only do it on your primary residence. So in Denver, we converted all of our short-term rentals to medium-term rentals. So they stayed furnished, but they were 30 or more days. And we manage those because they're not very difficult to manage. So anything that's long-term or medium-term, we would manage ourselves. Anything that's short-term, we farm out. That makes sense. The turnover rate is a lot... <laughs> Smaller, uh, yeah, you know, but on the on yeah on the Airbnb, the short term rentals, it's like (laughs) yeah. We have a well, we did we so we had stopped doing Airbnb for a long time because our property managers were handling it, but then we ended up opening an Airbnb experiences business, and I was just blown away by how obnoxious Airbnb is about respond, respond, you know, and it was Mm. just like my God, who has time for this? But people do. But it just I was like. They need to calm down a little bit. <laughs> yeah. So for our listeners who may understand what a me- what, what you define as a medium-term rental, what is that? Sure. So a medium-term rental is where you keep your property furnished. So it has you know everything that you would typically have, which is like a bed, a couch, whatever. But the rental is 30 days or more. And usually those renters tend to be three to six months. And the reason for that is because most of the laws – 
locally and I think nationally have a limit on 30 days. So if you get to 31 or more days, it's not considered a short-term rental. And so you're fine within the law. If you're under 30 days, then that's where you start to get into issues, especially as cities have become hip to Airbnb or neighbors are annoyed by it. So we were doing 30 plus days to be within the law. I will note, though, if you're in an HOA, a lot of HOAs will have 90 days or more or something. So you need to check both your local city standard, but also your HOA standard if you're in an HOA. But we did that and we like those because you typically rent to medical professionals. So a lot of people also call this the traveling nurse model. We've also found it has been really effective with corporate rentals and then also people, so uh, two other types, people that move to the city and aren't quite sure where they want to live in the city. So they're trying to vet neighborhoods, which I think is really smart. Why why commit to a neighborhood until you know the city? And then also people that are potentially thinking about divorce. So they will move into your place and try and figure stuff out and see if they really want to do this. And so those are typically who we've rented to. And, and they're fantastic. All of those people have been really, really good renters. They tend to be responsible. They have jobs. They're low key. And a lot of times too, they convert. So a lot of ours had converted, like they'll come in and say, I only want to do three to six months, but then they end up doing an 18 month rental at the higher price. And so we've been extremely happy with them. That's great. On your short-term rentals, any tips for how to find a a property management to do the short-term rental? I don't necessarily have a tip. I would say do word of mouth because that's always going to be your best. I think a lot of people, there's Facebook groups where you can look and ask for someone. I just think property management, I have a lot of conversations about this and I struggle with it myself, is that they're never going to care about your property or your business the way that you do. And so you need to go in with a measured expectation about how they're going to handle stuff. I know my brother owns like four or five properties and I had moved them off to property management and was like, well, we're not getting five star reviews anymore and we're not. And it's like, and you're not going to, you know, the price is is that you don't talk to, you know, you have a level of not thinking about things and you get your check, but your check may not be, it's not going to be as high as if you managed it yourself. And so I guess that's something that I find a lot of clients have issues with. And I just think property management is a very hard job with really low margins. And it's hard for people to find a property manager that they like. And and if you do, I would say, hold on tight to that person and treat (laughs) them very well because they're, they're a rare breed. So I live in a property right now that has a mother-in-law unit. And what are the steps that I should take to make sure it's viable as a short-term rental? Sure. I mean, I think that there are local standards. So depending on where you're at, you're going to want to check what where you're at within the law. Because a lot of places like Denver basically what you're looking for is whether or not you have a separate address. If you have a separate address, then you cannot do it. If you only share one address, wherever you take your mail, you can do it. So you just want to check the local standards because then there's other cities where you just cannot, it's not allowed at all. So I would say check the local standards first, then make sure you're in compliance with all the safety that's um, listed if they actually do have a short-term rental law. So like carbon monoxide detectors, fire detectors, handrails. The other thing I would say that's really important that people sometimes miss is because people think, well, Airbnb has an insurance component, so I'm covered. I would say make sure that you're absolutely with an insurance group that understands exactly 
what it is to do a short-term rental. I don't know if you guys are comfortable with this, but I will say we use proper insurance and they do pay us. So this is a plug for somebody I'm paid for, but it's also who I use and it's who I tell everyone to use. And sorry, Monday, the reason for that is because they know exactly, you know, there's no confusion about what they're doing. And so I think sometimes it's probably changing as more people are hip to short-term rentals. But I think in the past, you might go to an insurance carrier and they would say, we understand, you know, short-term rentals and they didn't necessarily. So yeah, uh, we use proper as well and have, have been very happy with them. Uh, although we've mm-hmm. never made a claim. So, uh, <laughs> but I, I always got spooked by the idea, idea of having a claim and going to our, our traditional homeowners insurance and them going, Oh wait, you're using it for commercial purposes. Uh, yeah, we're not going to, so, so not only am I not going to pay your claim, I'm going to kick you off the insurance. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And Airbnb makes you do the claim with your insurance first. So oh, there's, yeah. there's not a good way around that. No, and insurance companies are notorious for finding ways to not pay. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> don't give them an excuse. I was just going to ask for, I'm sure it's different everywhere, but for like something like for ours, you know, we've got the mother-in-law unit. It's on our property. It's the same address. Is it kind of like renting out a room? Is that is that what uh, is that what the Denver market allows? Is do they allow people renting out individual rooms as well? Yeah. I mean, you can you can do the the room by room model, or you can do a mother law model as long as the address is the same as your address. Right. So in Denver, you can be as long as it's on your prime. It's your primary residence, which people get confused. They think that's a duplex. It is strictly where you take your mail. Is how we tell people about it. It's the easiest way to think about it. So you could do a room in your house. You could do your full house if you are someone that travels a lot or you're going on vacation. The first 14 days are going to be tax-free, but then after that, you're going to have implications or you can do a mother-in-law suite in the back. What I will say a ton of our clients do is they do a basement unit. So a lot of the houses in Denver, certain neighborhoods in Denver, they allow you to enter the house through an exterior door in the back. And so people walk into the basement and you never see them and you never really interact with them. And I think there is definitely a premium on feeling like you have the entire place to yourself and they are not talking to you. I know, I mean, some people really like that friendly side and they like to meet people. I personally, it's like when I'm on vacation, I want to be on vacation and I don't necessarily... It's like when I get a massage, I don't necessarily want to talk to the missus. I want to like be in my own world. And I think so there's that premium for the entire place. And so we see a lot of people not necessarily rent out their entire place or rent out a room. They rent out an area where they do not, you know, people can access them without ever having to interact. Yeah, that was our, it's been our experience as well. When we first started off, I think we, we even invited a couple of people from Europe in for dinner into our main house. Uh, and they were very nice. It was very, you know, it was very pleasant. Every once in a while we get one, you know, one or two people who are, you know, like, Hey, we really want to meet you. But 95% of the people, they just want to places. Care. They don't care. They'll say hi if like yeah. we're leaving the driveway at the same time. Yeah. But right. I think the benefit to that too is that then if the law changes or your HOA changes and you have to flip to the medium term rental, I mean, the medium term rental people definitely do not want to see you or have a relationship with you. So if you already have that side of it set up, you can convert really easily as well. Yeah. Gotcha. Do you have much success in doing medium term rentals on sort of 
efficiencies that don't have, um, this is a totally selfish question. <laughs> uh, do you have, have you seen people have much success uh, doing medium term rentals with sort of um, efficiency apartments that don't have full kitchens that basically just have like a microwave, a coffee bar and a little mini fridge? We just haven't had a lot of experience. So we, our studio was kind of similar to that. So it, it had a full fridge and a coffee maker, and then it didn't have a full stove. So it had like kind of a heat top or a lower stove capacity and then no oven. And it was fine. We actually had no problem renting that. I think with that stuff always is just tell people up front and people will make a decision. I don't think that'd be a big deal. Like I personally hate cooking. I think a lot of men, I'm being really stereotypical here, but a lot of men don't like to cook. And I think I'm happy if it doesn't have a kitchen. (laughs) I cannot be forced to pretend to cook. That makes sense. So when you are looking at this properties, what do you have a a tool or a process that you go through to analyze a property as a potential short-term rental or medium term? Uh, Definitely. (laughs) I think that it's something that it's a way that we kind of differentiate ourselves is that we do have a certain, not algorithm, but the way that we would set up our search to pull properties that will allow for that basement. There's certain language that we would use to make that, to help pull for those. And then also, I just think because we've been doing this for a while, we're always looking for that back door and stuff in a way that I think other agents might not be thinking about. A lot of people are like hip to like, yes, it's got to be a duplex or whatever without actually knowing that you would be a foul of the law in Denver off of the duplex. And also that there's a cheaper entry point. Duplexes aren't cheap. There's a lot of competition, a lot of cash going for those. So, you know, just utilizing that basement access for us and for our clients, we feel like has been a better model. Any sort of uh, tools that you use for estimating what it would rent for and things like that? Yeah, great question. We use Rentometer. And are you guys familiar with that? I think I some people say Rentometer or I say Rentometer. Yeah. But I think that is really good because you can kind of see what what the average is in your neighborhood. And then if it's furnished, you can mark it up a little bit. We also tell people to just go straight onto Airbnb and try and locate the three closest properties and see um, what people are making. You can also directly email the host. People love to brag about the money they are making here. <laughs> they are usually happy to answer your questions. And then also for us, just because we're embedded in the community a little bit, and we've had some clients do it. We have all of our clients send us the monthly numbers so that we can say to our future clients, well, two people within a five mile radius with only a basement apartment made this kind of money. So this can be your expectation. And five mile radius is too large. I would say like a mile radius because Mm -hmm. obviously location is important here. When you're looking for properties, are you getting them off of the MLS or are they off market? We only do MLS. I know that some people have this, you know, feeling again about wholesaling or deals. And I think maybe as we are further into, we're in our third year, but maybe as we get further into it, that will be something we pursue. It's just, it's not something we've had to pursue. And it's not, you know, again, Denver and Colorado Springs have been such hot markets. Everybody wants to be in there. Shit flies so fast that I think stuff flies so fast. It's fine. Um, <laughs> I think that honestly, if you wholesaled your place here, I wouldn't. I wouldn't understand why you would do that. You should put it on the MLS to get a bidding war to move it up. So we just typically tell people. Are you guys familiar with Bigger Pockets? Are you? On oh yes. Oh yeah. Okay. So I always feel like Bigger Pockets. 
maybe because of different markets, we'll say like, try and get a deal, try and be creative. And I feel like in our markets, really what you're trying to do and where you're looking for value is if it's sat on the market for two or three weekends, you're obviously not paying full price. And then really where your value is going to be is like negotiating in the inspection and maybe negotiating off the appraisal. But to think that you're going to go in and undercut someone it's not going to happen in these two markets. No, no. And Las Vegas is very much that market as well. Although we'll see what happens given <laughs> the circumstances yeah. of what's going right. on. Yeah. Do you have a, when it comes to rentometer, do you have a kind of a rule of thumb that you go off of to, to sort of figure out, you know, Hey, it makes, you know, it's a thousand dollar rental on long term. Here's what I think it would be for short term and medium term. Yeah, for medium term, I so I always try to stay conservative just because that's better, you know, better to fail, better to be off that way than the other way. So usually for short term rentals, I will do like I will times it by one and a half. And then for medium term rentals, I'll do 1.25. But again, I usually find that what I'm seeing on Rentometer versus what other people, I feel like Rentometer is actually usually, usually a little bit lower than what the what I'm seeing people get. So that's actually good. I feel like 1.5 sometimes, depending, can be a little bit high. But if Rentometer is already skewing at a little bit low, gotcha. you're usually close. And then, and then for our clients, at least, we run through an Excel sheet for every single property to yeah. see like, okay, these are going to be your, your utility expenses, your cable expenses, your property management expenses. If you decide to go that route, et cetera. Gotcha. Gotcha. So you've done some partnerships on short term rentals. Can you talk about how you, the numbers on that deal, how you structured it, any pitfalls and things like that? Sure. So we, we've had a partnership. We're in one right now and it's a duplex in Colorado Springs. And so it's two totally separate units. So they're on the same lot, but one is built above a garage and it has its own address. And then the other one is a front unit and has its own address. Colorado Springs has different laws. So Colorado Springs, you can do that or you could do that. They just had a recent law change. So when I was talking about Denver before being a primary residence in Colorado Springs, that's a different situation. But we had done that. We were making really good money in the summer. So you would see like between the two places, between 5000 and 7000 a month, basically from May to September. And that includes both units. So it's not five to 7000 per unit. It's five to 7000 for both units. And then our mortgage was approximately 2400 So we were making a lot. Then you saw it really slow down from October to March, April. But for us, like we have the Air Force Academy graduation here, and that's a huge weekend for everyone. I actually think that that's a weekend that gets a lot of people to actually join the market because they see like I can cover my mortgage just by renting out for this single weekend. And so we were having that. I think it, we are still part of that business partnership and it's been good. But I think I will say we fired two different property managers now. And so because of the coronavirus situation, we've moved into medium term rentals and we would have moved into medium term rentals or sold the property because we all felt like we were spending too much time and energy because of the property managers. I will say, I think with business partners, I wrote an article about this a while ago. I think that people... Some people want to use lawyers, some don't. We lawyered up in the beginning before any of this started and had our lawyers go back and forth. And we felt like that was a really good way to go about it because you know everyone's protected as you move forward and move into the deal. The other thing I would say about our business partners is like, 
we're friends with them and we also don't agree politically on things. And so it's been interesting. It was the reason why I bring this up is because we could talk about a whole array of situations without things getting hostile going into this, which made us think that also we could probably talk about difficult business decisions and still be civil about it. And that has proven to be true. And and this deal hasn't necessarily been easy. There's been uh, points that were difficult, but I think to this point, we still really like our business partners. They really like us. And I think having that framework in the beginning has helped that. And then also understanding before we have even ever moved into it, that we had different views about certain things and could talk through them made me feel more confident about moving into this. Well, and it's such a great point. The The whole lawyer thing is that it's really there to sort of make sure that you can stay friends. You yeah. know, you've got, you know, you've got basically the, the, a third party or in you know third and fourth party who are basically coming together and nailing out the details of what happens when something goes really really wrong. So, that's really yeah. and that's really work. Yeah. And that's where all partnership most partnerships are great until something goes wrong. And then yeah. <laughs> totally. and I sometimes I'll have people that I yeah, it's like we're friends or we're family and it's like yeah and there's a million stories about you no longer being friends and no longer attending Thanksgiving together. So just, I I guess I would say almost like go in with the assumption that things could get nasty and what is the plan for staying civil during that. So when someone's buying a property like this, are there anything that you would consider when you are talking to a lender for that that they want to do a, like a house hack short or a short term rental, I guess, in Colorado Springs. The lenders don't. I mean, you have so just like for anything, you have to have two years of results that you're going to show. You know, and that's just your debt to income ratio. If they're going to look at stuff, they're going to want to see two years if you're highly leveraged and stuff. But beyond that, my experience, at least, still is the lenders don't care. They don't distinguish this. It's like it's an investment, so you're going to put twenty percent down on an investment. If you're not going to live there, you're going to put 5% down if you are going to live there. Again, that's the advantage if you're looking to get into the market and buy a place and stuff. If you live there and you have that basement, you only have to pay 5%. You're not committing mortgage fraud. And that always comes up too. People are always like, well, can I just say I'm going to live there and put in the 5% down? And it's like, I mean, you can, but you know, (laughs) that has to be your comfort level and you are certainly making yourself very vulnerable in a way that I wouldn't feel comfortable with. Yeah. Yeah. Same here. Same here. So what has been the biggest frustration for you being a short-term rental owner slash host? Property management. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think across the board, across, you know, with some of our other businesses and then with this as well, I think employees and property, you know, I, not that property management is your employees, but they're, subset of people that don't own the business and don't have the same interests as you. And I think that's fair that they're not as committed to your business as you would be. But I think, you know, you have certain expectations. And when you start to bring other people into that, it's it's very hard to manage exactly what they do. And um, so I think property management has been a source of frustration. And I, and to drill down on that and be specific with it, I think transparency and reporting has been really hard for us. And, and not even because I think anyone is dishonest. I think just maybe they're new to business ownership as well. And so maybe their capacity to bookkeep or be transparent isn't where we would want it to be on the end. 
So that, at, you know, cleaning, I usually do find that they're pretty good at communication and on top of stuff that just cleaning. It's, I just think it's a very tough profession. I give it to them. It's not something I would ever want to do, but it also is just a really challenging piece on our side because as investors and working with so many investors, like you have to have that piece locked in and it's just, it's proven to be really challenging. Yeah. We've, we've talked to so many real estate investors, both from long-term and short-term who have said that property managers often don't scale well. They, exactly. you know, they're great yeah. in the beginning. And then once they hit a certain level of scale, they all go a little bit crazy and things start to fall apart. And, and, and that's where problems start to happen. So. Yes, I agree with that point a hundred percent because we, so we had one guy that never really scaled. We had these other people that totally scaled and now there's sort of a third game in town. And so everybody's moving their business to her. And I feel like, I mean, yeah, she's awesome now because she has 10 people that, you know, she's doubling as people are disenfranchised with this other group now. I mean, it's just like, it's so predictable. It's like now she is going to become, and through no fault of her own, right? Like she wants to grow her business. She wants to do whatever, but it's just, she has her employee issues, right? Like she's trying to get cleaners and keep numbers working. So that was your frustration. What has been a highlight of running some short-term rentals? Uh, Quitting my job. Uh, (laughs) I think that I had worked in marketing for a long time. So I had gone to grad school for marketing and I worked. So the marketing companies I worked for were small. I was the first employee at one of them. And then it grew to like a 45 person marketing company. And, but also we worked like a lot of our clients were small clients. So I think that that helps me. Like, I mean, quitting and starting your own business is intimidating, but I had had like a lot of exposure to seeing, first of all, that I felt like, okay, small business owners are not necessarily that smart. Some of the stuff that they were doing, I was like, not that they're dumb, but it was like, it kind of removed this idea that only like, only certain people can do that. I'm like, you know, they're just normal human beings. Like I can Mm -hmm. do this. And then also having exposure to that. So I think for real estate and Airbnb, it's not that I ever saw myself being a realtor or being this Airbnb person. It's just that I personally had always had a dream of owning my own business and not going in to work for someone else. And this was the fastest route for that. But I think that that's the highlight of my professional life. I have, we've been in business for three years for ourselves. And I think my husband, you know, I had said we sent out that mailing and then within six months he had quit his job. I remember we were having Valentine's dinner and he said, I kind of want to quit my job. And I remember I was totally sober and I was like, go for it. And I'm like, what? And then he quit March 1st. And I know by mid-May, I just, my boss pissed me off and it was like the third boss I had where I thought I'm not into this. And and I thought, you know, you're the common denominator here, not the boss. And so maybe you just don't want to be doing this stuff. And so I then quit and it was nuts. I mean, I think people sometimes to us are like, oh, that's the dream. And it's like, we were very irresponsible. You know, it's like we were were impulsive and we did Mm -hmm. it. And part of the reason why we did that is because I thought, there's always a nine to five job that I hate that I can go back to. And also my parents are never going to let us starve, but it wasn't like we had this plan. It was just like, I'm over this and I don't want to do it anymore. But, but I also think because of that, 
it was like feast or famine. You're very, very motivated at that point to get clients and to go to networking events and stuff in a way that I think you're not if you have a job. Yeah. So when you when you started down the path of short term rentals, was there any was there any way that you went about getting yourself educated? Well, I mean, I think we had the experience ourselves of doing it. So obviously, that's a bit of education. And then we went to a ton of networking groups. So whether that was bigger pockets, where you were just starting to have more exposure of other people doing that. And then both of us, I think, are pretty big on self-education. So we were listening to podcasts about it and following Facebook groups. And then I was reading a lot of the content that Airbnb would put up because Airbnb had really good content. I think there was a study they did in 2016 that I was always citing to people about who the demographics were as far as like seniors are the fastest growing demographic. And 85% of millennials say they'd be more apt to vote for a representative that's pro Airbnb. And on average, a host is making $7,500 per year. So I think pulling from large scale demographics and large scale sources, and then also like narrowing in on what does this, what is the reality of this for us, for our clients, for the market, and and also being completely on top of the laws. So just saying to everyone, this is a good city to go to because they've passed a law that's friendly or not friendly. But if a law has been passed, that's a much better place to be because you know versus if you're going into a place that's friendly, but they don't have a law, you can do it. It's just assume that in two to three years, the law is going to change and your model is going to have to change. So education wise, I would say that's a differentiator for us. And then also for our clients is that I call all the local cities every six months and say, are we still doing this? You know, what's, what's the situation? Yeah, it's it's such a it's really is the, the almost the most important thing about the short term rental strategy is just knowing what the city, what the market is going to do and, and understanding that if there's not a framework right now, if the there, if will, the, be. there will be, you know, and some so you can go towards the more traditional short term rental markets that have figured out how to monetize it and they're okay with it and the community's okay with it. They just live you know, that's just part of the what the community is. But if you're in a market where it's not been a traditional thing and it becomes starts to become a big deal and they haven't put things in place, there eventually will be the neighbors will they'll get nimby and and they'll start coming after you. Yeah, which is actually exactly what happened in Colorado Springs. So Colorado Springs had been really friendly to short-term rental. and it, So Denver and Colorado Springs, it's very interesting. Denver is very liberal, and they're very worried about housing affordability. So they had that law early on. Colorado Springs is very Republican, and like we get to do whatever we want with our land and whatever. So they had had this approach of like anybody can kind of buy up. Well, then you started to see a huge contingent of people buying and people coming from California and buying. And so that, and also the hotels getting very upset about what was happening. So Colorado Springs then very rapidly changed. And so now with Colorado Springs, you can do it in your primary residence or you can do it in a duplex with, as long as there's no other rental within 500 feet. And so a lot of people got grandfathered in and, and that ended up being okay. But again, our position has always been like, plan on a different model or be comfortable or say, you know, I'll make this crazy money for four years and then I'll sell or I'll transition. And I don't think that's the worst idea. If you think I'm going to do a long-term model and I'm only going to make a hundred dollars per month, 
for the rest of time. I mean, that's actually could say for two and a half years, I'm going to make crazy money and then convert to $100 a month. You know, if you think about it, like in the future, it's just different ways of thinking about it. Yeah. And it's, you know, so many people think of, they always picture, I'm going to buy a rental and I'm going to hold it forever. And I don't know that that's, for me personally, I don't think that's necessarily the great, the greatest model. You know, I, I kind of, I sort of factor out about 10 years. I go, I want to hold a property for about 10 years, maybe 15 years. And then it, before it starts having all the, the capital expenditures, then sell it to somebody else, get, you know, extract your equity out of it and, and put it into something else. So, yeah, I tell you, I think it's not a plan if you're going to invest for two years, I think that's risky. But I think 10 years, right? Like, yeah, why are why is the assumption? I think a lot of this is changing. People are starting to have different attitudes about it. But there used to be some real old school thinking about investing that now is rapidly shifting. Because I see it too with a lot of our clients will have like a 25-year-old come to us and say, I want to do this. But his dad is like, don't do that. And it's like, well, you know, your dad may not be comfortable with this model yet. So we need to work on the education piece of that. And I always think too, if a parent is involved, that's my end user. It's not, yeah, yeah. It's not the kid in front of me. It's talking to their dad or their yeah. mom. Cause those people do have their best interests in mind, but they, they maybe are not on the same page about how things have changed. Gotcha. Gotcha. So what uh, does a day in the life for you look like? Sure. So in the past, a day in the life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not currently um, in March or in uh, April 2020, but. Yeah. <laughs> so in the past, what we would do is we would, I think usually James and myself would like to have, we would, we would top out at around four or five active clients per agent. And right now it's just James and I. So eight to 10 active clients. And that means, you know, they have talked to a lender and we're showing them places. So we would have that. And I would say, usually that was dominant on Friday, Saturdays and Sundays that you're taking people out. We're always open to taking people whenever, but obviously because of other people's schedules, that's typically what it looks like. So going out with them, anybody that's under contract, just making sure that they're aware of all the deadlines, all the laws, what they can do, staying on top of their lending. So that, and then for networking, both James and I put out a lot of content around short-term rentals, Airbnb, medium terms. I usually felt like anytime I learned something in a deal that was new to me, whether it was 1031 exchanges or lending or whatever, I would try and write a blog article about it because I felt like it's at least relevant to my client base, but it's probably relevant to someone else's. We had started to move into video because I feel like video is starting to really have a lot, do a lot of podcasts. And then also James does a lot of education. So classes around doing your first Airbnb, doing your first housing buy, your first housing sell. And then I have a class on house hacking, which is really just a fancy way of saying you have a roommate or you're doing Airbnb. And then also I do a once a month group on women investing. So Denver Women Invest. And the reason why I opened that up, that's probably been going on for like 18 months or two years because I, when I got into this, I would go to investing groups and it was just so male dominated. And I thought if I hadn't come in with my husband, I would have walked in and walked right back out. And even in the beginning with him, it was still very intimidating. People are throwing around terms and 
a lot of one-upping each other and stuff. And so I just really disliked it. And I also just didn't see many females. It's like, I would have been aware of the females because I would have gone and talked to them, you know? And so I felt like there was a space for that. So then I opened up and I, and again, this is sexist, but I feel like just like the parents are the end user. I feel like a lot of times the females are my end user. If there's a married couple and the guy's talking up a storm about investing, I'm always like, are you married? We need to get your wife on the phone because I don't want to do all this and then find out that your wife was never interested or a part of this. And so I opened up this group for females. And so it's a little bit different in the way that it's set up. So we would have a female professional come in, whether that's a lender or an inspector or myself or someone else that's done investing, they would come in and do like a 20 to 30 minute speech. People could come in and ask questions or ask questions afterwards. We'd talk about it and then networking after, you know, not networking. I don't like, no one is going to go in and sell you. It's like you talk about things that are mutually interesting to you. And so usually that group was like an hour to two hours long each month. And that has actually been really effective for me. It's both a group where I feel like I'm learning a lot and I like a lot, but I'm also pulling a lot of clients out of that. So that I would say is my number one focus professionally is just trying to tend to that group because it's been good for me on an education level, but also good on a business level. Yeah, yeah. it's great. hard to go into something that you're new in and not see anyone else that looks or feels like you. And so having that just, it adds a level of comfort. And I find the same thing when I go to things with Neil, there's a large number of men there and it's fine, but you know, it's, I feel like it's just kind of like you want to find someone that has a similar personality or style to you. It can be helpful to learn. It's easier to learn from them a lot of times. So it's, I wish that we had more women here that I could connect with because I talk about things and I learn things in a different way than I think a lot of the men do. I think that is a great summary. Like that last point about you learn things or you're looking for things differently than men do, because I feel like sometimes there's an attitude or a pushback and I completely get this like, Oh, it's a women's group. Like, what does that mean? They're not a subset of investors. They're just investors. And so I get that. I don't want to be talked to differently because I'm a female, but I will say, I think that females take in information a little bit differently. Like men, it tends to be more of a linear path. Females, they want to hear that investing is good from a podcast and then from a friend or they want to meet someone. And so maybe just having a little bit different of an approach or even like sometimes I'll be talking to a married couple and the guy is really focused on the basement component because he wants to have that rental or whatever. But the wife is like, well, we need a space where the kitchen, I can see the kid, you know, and it's like, yeah, of course. Right. But unless I talk to the wife, I don't ever know that that is an important thing. And so I just think having both sides and also for myself, I read a stat and this blew my mind is that females make 85% of all consumer decisions period. But when it comes to housing, they make 91%. But then when you talk about investors, they drop to 25%. So it was Mm. like, it's really not that different. It's like a mental thing where you don't see yourself as an investor. And I personally found that frustrating. It's like, it's to your detriment that you're not investing. But I I totally get it because I have that stereotype or that I felt intimidated or just not like, I didn't see myself as that. Yeah, yeah. 
All right. Last question. Could you do this from anywhere in the world? Could you take some time and go off to Thailand for a couple of months? I mean, we did. So we actually did go to Vietnam and Thailand last year for six weeks in the middle of it. We can. So you have people, we have, you know, we do have people that we trust that aren't employees per se, but they're just friends that are in the business. And so they can open doors. And I always try to say to people, my value add is not opening a door for you. It's negotiating, making sure you're right on the laws and stuff. And so, yes, we can do it remotely. I think I, for us, at least I would only do a remote piece for a very limited chunk of time. I wouldn't anticipate doing it for a year or two abroad. I think you lose that connection and people don't feel like they want to refer to you as much because you're not their friend that they're seeing or meeting. And, and also with the investment groups and stuff, we, we wouldn't be able to scale as much, but certainly we can do it for chunks. Yeah. Well, with a real estate agent, you do need to be, you really do need to be there. I mean, I, I had a, I remember I had a friend of mine here in Las Vegas who was a, he's a world renowned travel hacker. And he's also a real estate agent. And when he heard I was getting into real estate, he's like, oh, hey, I'm a real estate agent. You know, if you ever need to buy something, you know, let me know. And I'm like, dude, you're every weekend you're in like Jerusalem or <laughs> Saigon or whatever. There's no way I would ever hire you as a real estate agent. So. Yeah, exactly. It, yes, exactly. Yeah. Okay. So as we record this episode, we are in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic and it's having a huge impact on every area of the economy, but especially short-term rentals. Travel, generally. And travel. Is yeah. there is there anything differently that you're doing to manage this crisis? Yeah. So I think a couple things. I think I, when people, I've seen some real estate agents that are still all in because they feel like the markets have tanked, but real estate hasn't yet. I guess I would say be suspicious of anyone that says that. We have no idea what is going on. So I can tell you, I personally am not investing in anything. And I know sometimes people feel like, well, this is a sale. This is the time to do it. Maybe, but it is April of 2020. So I just would always say, let's take a beat, wait a few months, and then maybe do that. The other thing I would say specific to short-term rentals is that we moved everything immediately to medium-term rentals and advised our clients to do that too because we feel like that is going to become the trend because the short-term rental has been gutted. We have no idea when we're going to bounce back on that. And so if you can do a medium-term rental and get a nurse or a doctor or a medical professional in there, that's going to be a more solid rental picture for a little bit and also depending, you can maybe even cut your fees a little bit and maybe help some of those medical professionals. And then you also don't have to worry about it. So that's what we've been doing and and told everybody to do because I also feel like it's happening very quickly. And so maybe some people are hip to this and others aren't yet. So I think being early in the game and, and on that note, I would say we have done it on Airbnb. So you just set it for 30 days or more. Airbnb is still a really good generator for that. Furnish finders, which is $99 a year, but that's significantly less than 3% of your Airbnb mm-hmm. rental. So we've done those two places. And then Facebook Marketplace, I feel like Facebook Marketplace is the new Craigslist, but it's a lot more on the up and up. And then actually Zillow as well. So those are the four places we've been putting them and we got people in on all of them. So fingers crossed that they stay for a while and that we'll see where we're at in July. A lot of them are rented through July. We'll see what's going on in July when it releases. I know. Yeah, it's, um, 
it's been a wild ride for us as well. I mean, Las Vegas, the whole city of Las Vegas is just shut down. There's not, none of the casinos are open and, uh, and this is a service industry town. So I don't know, yeah. I don't know what's going to happen. Well, Do you I, feel that there's like a local panic? I mean, I, I have thought about Las Vegas a little bit because it does seem like of all the communities that might be the one that is most impacted because it's just so much a service industry. I think it's a fair assumption. It's, I mean, I haven't heard people panicking, but yeah. it's, it's hard because I don't think there's a lot of communication. I will say that I think it's less so because we don't have a severe outbreak here at this time. That's not to say that that won't happen, but I think if we were, if it was, you know, we were experiencing anything near the level of New York or even, you know, Louisiana, Florida, where they're having, or Washington, where they've got these big hot spots, I think people would be a lot more alarmed because it's going to take a lot, seemingly right now, it would take a longer time to recover because casino, the short term rentals, I'd be interested to see if those bounce back quicker because you don't have to be with other people. If it's still floating around, because it, it's probably going to be around for a long time. But the the hotels, the casinos, like you're packed in there. <laughs> you're exposing yourself to, to lots of people and the air's recirculated and nothing gets cleaned very often and all those kinds of things. So it'll be interesting to see that. But as, as it is right now, I'm not seeing huge, like crazy people freaking out. But maybe I'm not looking in the right places. Yeah. But I think if it was coinciding with a large breakout, that the people would be even more... <laughs> Yeah. Frightened. Yeah. Well, and we're I think it's all a new territory, you know. Yeah, like, and know, we're all we're all in uncharted waters, you know. And and uh, the the thing that people need to realize with real estate is that it's a lagging. It's going to be a lagging market. It's not. It's not gonna. It's not like you said. You know, it's not like the stock market drops and then oh hey, it's time for the real estate market to drop. You know, I'm ready to buy. People are gonna. You know, people have got some reserves. They've got unemployment. They're gonna be holding on as long as they can, you know, and it's probably going to be three to six months before you really start to see people being impacted with their housing, which is yeah. what would drag the market es- down. Especially with yeah. the, the considerations that a lot of governors and, and other officials are, are giving where, you know, they're putting a ban on evictions, evictions, and thank you, and foreclosures. And I'm sure there will probably be some things to help with people who have, you know, mortgages that they are having trouble paying and all, you know, if they've got renters, all that kind of stuff. So. Yeah. I think locally here, so you can't, there's no evictions going on, which is great, but I think you still can, if the tenants don't pay the rent, they could potentially have a credit hit. I think you can do a forbearance on mortgage, but again, your credit might get it. And then on the real estate side, we can't in Colorado, at least, we can't show houses right now. So you can do like a virtual thing. Or what's interesting is if you go under contract, you can go on when the inspector goes in. But I just, I just see everything stopping, you know, and I just, it frustrates me when I hear people be like, Ooh, it's whatever. It's like, nobody has that. I mean, yeah. Yeah. we have no idea. Yeah. I just saw article today that said JP Morgan Chase is tightening their lending lending standards and saying that they will only lend to people who have a credit score over 700 and it required 20% down which will be oh, very, wow. very interesting. I mean that could really that could drag down prices in the market because now you're going to be the buyer pool suddenly becomes very small. That's really fun. I mean I understand why they do that. It's just frustrating because at least in Colorado, you are already seeing such disparity in who can buy a house and who can't. I mean, I feel like I work with a lot of people that 
have grad school degrees and they not like everything's been given to them, but they've had a lot of help along the way. And they're still struggling to get a house in Denver. It's like, that makes me feel like, well, what about everybody else? And so when something like that, you know, when JP Morgan is now saying 20% and only a $700 credit or 700 point credit score or higher, it's like, well, we know who that's going to affect. It's just frustrating. And I, well, Aaron, thank you so much for sharing with us today. If any of our listeners want to reach out, what would be the best way for them to do that? Sure. Um, so two places you can find, if you look up Denver Women Invest online or www.denverwomeninvest, you will find me there or Aaron and James, E-R-I-N and James.com real estate or Aaron and James real estate.com. You can find us. And I think, you know, there's a lot of resources there for Denver and for buyers and sellers for short term, medium, whenever that comes back. Okay. Awesome. Well, great. Thanks. Thank you so much. Yep. Yeah, you guys, thank you so much for having me. It was, uh, I'm flattered that you had me on and I'm happy to be on it and you guys do a great show. So thank you. Thanks. Okay. That was Aaron Spradlin from Aaron and James real estate.com. Always love talking about short-term rentals. It's very near and dear to heart, our heart, especially with house hacks and things like that, even with, uh, what's going on with the (laughs) COVID and all that. So yeah, what was the key lesson learned for you? I think that. I think, I don't know if it was a lesson, but I really liked hearing her talk about sort of creating resources for people who, for women, to see that in, be able to to see investing, women investing, and kind of help bring that together. Because, you know, she is right. You've got those statistics, and I've never really looked at those about women typically control a lot of the buying decisions and a lot of the house buying decisions, but then there's a disconnect because they don't make those same kinds of investments. And it's, I think that's something that I was, I wasn't necessarily interested in it or I was intimidated by it. And just by doing this, it's been sort of nice because I get to see women. And and I think having that resource there for people to, to get to see how to make it work and, and learn about it from a different perspective than some of the typical ways that it gets presented by white men. <laughs> well, and I think that's a great point because if you go, if you are, in a room with a group of people who all share the same interests and you look different from them, you know, you're a woman in at a real estate RIA meeting and yeah. it's a bunch of men. There's I would not, also say that that probably is true for people of color as correct. well. Yep. And, that's, um, and that was I've, the point. Yep. Yeah. Looked at if yep. I, any real estate thing that we go to, it generally tends to be a lot of white men. Yep. And if that is you, then there's an opportunity there there's an opportunity to carve out a niche for yourself and find other people who look like you. And it doesn't mean you don't associate with people who don't look like you at all, but it's just, to me, it's a potential, it's a potential yeah, niche. It's so. a potential niche and also a way for you can be, you can hopefully, you know, you could be that trailblazer. And I think that's, but that's something that I think not everyone wants to do that. They don't want to be, feel like they have to be the one that takes the reins. So having a group like that to, to show that there are already people in that space can be important. For me, I think managing your expectations when it comes to property managers, both short and long term, you need to realize that, you know, these people, they don't, it's not, it's your asset, not theirs. They're just like an employee in a business. Don't expect your employee to care as much about your business as you do. They're working essentially for a wage and, you know, so manage those expectations. I think that is really important. What was a key piece of knowledge that was important for her to have? 
knowledge of the local laws uh, when it comes to short-term rentals. It's such a huge factor in in the market right now because so many so many local communities are changing the laws. You know, mm-hmm. they're implementing new laws and things like that. It's very important to for her to to stay on top of that and yeah. actually call them and and talk to them about what they're doing, not just the local community but also the HOA. Yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, don't do things illegally. Yes. <laughs> we'll bite you in the butt because it used to be just like the wild, wild west. Yep. Do whatever you it's want. It's not the wild but west But it's anymore. not that anymore. And no. people are really, and that's, that's where like by being respectful, you can also sort of make it so that there's less, that later the laws don't get harder and harder because yes. you've got people that, I mean, that's kind of happened here. You know, obviously the hotel lobby probably has part of that, but people were having, you know, the like college students come in and doing these huge parties at these large houses and that sort of ruined the respectability of it for a lot of other people. And so regulations went into place that really prevented a lot of ability to do this easily. Whereas, you know, if people ran things kind of in a, a, what we know now in ways that would be more respectful to their neighbors and things that might've been, might not have happened as strict, you know, strongly. Don't be a bad actor. I mean, be a responsible host, enforce quiet hours, install a noise aware device, you know, make sure there aren't parties happening, things like that. You know, we've talked about it in other interviews, how to kind of navigate that and set things up appropriately. So money. So they, the first place that they actually bought, they had to put about $32,000 down. However, they actually borrowed that money from a HELOC, Mm -hmm. which was a strategy that we we've used to uh, buy properties. We've never used it as a down payment on a property. No, we've done cash, but they're not really, I mean, she already said that at least in their market, cash buy properties aren't really a thing or like, you know, um, Yeah, so it's it's really it makes more sense that that it would be used for a down payment. But yeah, the I think now I don't know how we didn't really talk much about what they're investing in now if anything because they're mostly just helping other people invest it sounds like. Yeah. Well, I mean they're they're converting, you know, she mentioned they're converting a lot of their short-term rentals to medium-term rentals and I just um, mean new investments. Yeah. Yeah. So, what about time? How much time well, is she putting into this? I mean, the real estate piece as far as being a real estate agent is a full-time job for her. Mm -hmm. And so if that's something that you want to do to help people, then it really is another job. It's not something, and I guess we can roll down to location as well. It's not really location independent because you, it's a, it is a job. Now it's a job that they have control over. And so they get all the flexibility and they can do it their way and they don't have to be beholden to a boss or anything like that, which is nice, but it really is still a full-time job. Now, if you look at just what they're doing with just their investments, their properties, we didn't really talk about it strictly, but they're probably negligible as far as like how much time they're spending on it. You know, you've got property managers for the shorter term rentals and then they're managing the longer term term. ones. Okay. Well, that was Erin Spradlin from Erin and James Real Estate.com again. Uh, We loved talking to her. Check her out if you're in the Denver, Colorado Springs area, Fort Collins as well. Her and her husband are uh, helping people buy house hacks and short-term rentals. So check her out. Awesome. Let's hit the road. Bye. And if you like this podcast, 
We would really appreciate it if you take just a few minutes and leave a review for us on iTunes. It's really simple to do. Just go to roadtofamilyfreedom.com slash review for links and instructions. Thanks for listening. We're doing this all again next week. Until then, safe travels.